Hello and welcome on behalf of Hao Hebelam Ufa to our first debate of this theatre season in the discussion series Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. In our last discussion, before the summer break, together with TJ Demos and the Ottolit Group, we began to focus on the connection between the history of extractivist capitalism and the ongoing climate catastrophe. And we discussed how both ecocide and racial genocide lie at the origins of what is now called the quote-unquote Anthropocene. A discussion that was also aimed at a black critique of the term Anthropocene itself. And today we would like to continue this discussion with our guests Françoise Vergès and Edna Bonhomme. The discussion will depart from two very basic elements that sustain but also threaten human and non-human life, fire and water. The acceleration of anthropogenic climate change brings about both floods and wildfires increasing in number and intensity. Huge areas are or will be uninhabitable through rising sea levels and desertification. Yet these climate impacts are not caused by human nature as such or by the hubris of a universal anthropos, nor even as accidental byproducts of this thing called progress. Instead, they are based on the violent implementation of capitalist economies around the planet and the asymmetric distribution of financial gains and existential losses through the power operations of slavery, colonialism and imperialism. Thus, one could say that the very origin of what is now called the Anthropocene lies in racial capitalism's form of value extraction. Its history is continued today through the globalized petro-capitalist logic of production that enhances these inequalities along the lines of race, class and gender through the uneven distribution of environmental risks. The access to healthy water and fire and the shelter from destructive forms of both moves to the center of geopolitical struggles. Yes, and this boils down to Edna Bonhomme's research question, what makes people sick? Or following Françoise Vergès, we want to discuss the methodology required to write a history of their environment that includes slavery, colonialism and racial capitalism from, quote, the point of view of those who were made into cheap resources and commercial objects through wars, imprisonment and enslavement, end of quote. Françoise Vergès is a feminist and decolonial activist, a journalist and a political theorist based in Paris. She taught at universities in the US, UK and France, among others at Sussex and Goldsmith University. She has a long list of publications on geopolitics, colonialism and slavery, out of which we want to name the last two, The Warmth of Women, Capitalism, Racialization, Feminism in 2017 and En Feminisme Decolonial in Paris. She also is um, chairperson of the National Committee of the Memory and History of Slavery in France and an outspoken 
activist there. Edna Bonhomme is a writer, historian of science and cultural worker whose research interrogates the archaeology of post-colonial science, embodiment and surveillance. She holds a PhD from Princeton University and is a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. So welcome, Françoise Vergès and Edna Bonhomme. We are Maximilian Haas and Margarita Zumu, and we're looking forward to the conversation between you, starting with a lecture or impulse by Françoise Vergès. Well, thank you. I'm very, very glad to have this conversation with Edna. Hello, Edna. Hello, thank you. <laughs> nice to meet you, nice um, nice. even though through the screen. So, yeah, I want to, to make it rather to throw some uh, remark and question. When I read about, about burning virtue, I thought about fire and, and water. Water, because uh, uh, as human, we cannot live without water for long. So the question of water and the question of fire, that also was uh, uh, very important for the emergence of humanity. And this led me to... Uh, you know, reflect on what Sylvia Winter, the distinction she made between the man, you know, the history of man being the white male and the human, which she say has not really been there yet. We have to invent this humanness. And so in this question of water, for me, it was uh, when you travel in the global south uh, now, there is no place you can drink water from the tap. Everywhere it's privatized. So you have to drink everywhere, you know, water in bottle. And this went very, very fast, very fast. I remember traveling in Central America during civil wars over there one year. And the year later, we had to drink water in the bottle. And so this meant privatization because, of course, you know, public services were not being maintained. And this meant also multinational coming in. And we know that on top of it, you know, the soft drink in the global source have more sugar than in the north. So my point is every time when we pull many threads, how do we see, you know, in the plastic bottle, polluting more and more things. Or even we know the connection between the fact that there is no tap water, that women, you know, when they were feeding their babies, they were told to have the, the drink, the water from the bottle. And this led to a lot of problems. So my point is like every time that we look at something, how do we pull all the thread so that we don't have an analysis that we just look at gender or look at, you know, exploitation and domination, but we see, and since uh, uh, European colonization, all this was entangled. Uh, right now, as Max was saying, with water, when we see with the flood, but also with the pollution of seas, of ocean, of rivers and of lake. But also for me, the increased militarization of the sea and the ocean and the privatization of the sea and the ocean. That, you know, in uh, anti-colonial theory, we focus on the land and that was understandable. We had to recover the land from the settlers. We had to have a nation state independence. But then we barely look at the seas, at the bodies of water, which has been so important. First, of course, with the story of the enslavement, without sheep, there is no slave trade. And then with colonialism, the army coming through. And even today, most of the wars are led from the sea, not necessarily on land, from the sea and from the air. I mean, when I say from the air, the plane take off from boat, from ship. So all this, you know, the question of um, also like to reappropriate the water 
as a place sensitively of decolonization and to reappropriate the water in all its meaning. Because at the same time, the sea, if we have, you know, we know the story by Paul Gilroy of the Black Atlantic, but we have also the Black Pacific, and we have also the Indian Ocean, which is an African-Asian site. So how do we recover also this history? How do we make water our own, you know, part of our own history? And not just the history of privatization, army, and militarization, and today of business. The same way that extractivism on land is happening, it's happening also now in the ocean. And away from our eyes, you know, multinational are buying patents to dig. So extractivism is happening even in the deepest place of the sea. And the fire, in terms of the fire, of course, the burning of the forest, the deforestation and the burning that we saw at the beginning of 2020, before even we learned about the pandemic, we were witnessing the incredible fire in Amazonia, in Australia, in Siberia, everywhere, in so many places. And so the ashes traveling very far away, you know, extremely far away and covering everything, you know, in some grayish colors. And where a million of, you know, thousands of animals die and everyone lies, you know, being polluted. And the fire, meanwhile, we know that the deforestation by fire create also the zonos which are responsible from the pandemic that effectively bring species together, pushing bats away from their natural habitat. So my point is like there is no possibility not looking at things in their entangled, constant entangled connection. So the question of breathing, how breathing has become a a right, an anti-racist struggle, as we saw as much, you know, with I can breathe in the United States, but also that peasant who cannot breathe, that more people are dying every year from polluted hair than from any other reason, according to the World Health Organization. So what is being done to our lungs? And the question then of breathing and not breathing is connected with me also in the political vocabulary of we cannot breathe. The air is, you know, as in under dictatorship or under authoritarian regime, the feeling that you don't breathe either. So how breathing is not connected only with lung, but the question of respiration to be able to breathe. And to breathe is not just about the biological need, it's about also I breathe because, you know, the situation around me is not saturated with violence. It's not this racial capitalism which is saturated with violence and which sometimes oppress me in the sense that I feel I cannot breathe either. So all this connection about breathing that, you know, politicize the question of breathing and not making it just a question of pollution, that if we clean the air, we will breathe better. Of course, this would be important, but also we need to breathe in the sense that as long as we live in this racist society, saturated with violence against women, against black people, against Muslim in Europe, against, you know, children, we will not breathe. And in terms of also my second point I want to to throw is this question of extractivism. And to think about, of course, extractivism started. It's not about just extracting mineral for whatever wealth or cotton or sugar. It's also the extraction of work. And the extraction then in the work, I'm focused on the female body, on the female black body, or, you know, the indigenous body, female body. 
how their womb became capital and was absolutely important in the accumulation of wealth because it was the children these women were bearing and then who were stolen from them that constituted also the workforce that was extracted from Africa during the slave trade or extracted today for, you know, in the question of migration and then uh, work to death. So also how extractivism went along with a certain economy of exhaustion. You exhaust the body until it's the premature death of the body, but you exhaust also the mind, you exhaust the soul, the subsoil, and as soon as it's exhausted, you move away. Capitalists will move away, will find another place to extract. And then we left behind it wasted land, wasted bodies, wasted people. So this kind of like a politics of wasting and that capitalism can be seen as producing waste rather than producing goods in a way. That is producing waste in the sense that if it's already part of what is being produced, we know is not being consumed. There is too much production for it to be really consumed, even from the 7 billion people on earth. So in part of the production is already known to be, you know, wasted. And this waste accumulate then in the country of the global south, or is being cleaned every day in the north by black people, black women or black men in the street. So how also this question of waste, the production of waste, and then the idea of cleanliness of cities which are being clean, of continents which are clean, versus continents which are unclean, because waste is being dumped over there. And when I say waste, it's not just only plastic, it's also clothes, it's also all the digital waste that is thrown, for instance, in Accra, where there is huge, or the ships which are sent to Bangladesh to be, you know, discarded. All this is like ton and ton of waste being thrown into the global source every day to be discarded or to be, you know, absorbed, so that city in Europe can appear clean, beautiful, open for tourism. And this idea of, you know, of also the place which are clean, of hygienic, play again on a colonial trope of who is being clean and who is being dirty. And what bodies are, you know, the bodies of white people have access to clean water, to clean themselves, to clean hair, and to be effectively living with green places and so on. So the idea, the image, quite often we know that we see image of the global south with, you know, huge dump of waste and people searching, children looking through them. I mean, the idea then, of course, of people walking in waste, whereas the images of the north, of the global north, will be on the clean side. So how attractivism works also with exploitation and exhaustion and the politic of suffocation with the politic of exhaustion. And that with the increase of violence and inequality of injustice, Everywhere, there is less and less refuges and sanctuaries to protect ourselves. So the world is more and more constructed into enclave. And we see that in the city of the south. If you go to Johannesburg in Brazil or even in Mexico, you will have neighborhoods which will be clean, incredibly clean, and with green park. And then you can almost walk safely. And then you have the other enclave where those who come to clean, to serve, to take care, you know, all the caring will be done by the people who live very far away in neighborhood where, you know, garbage is not being picked up, 
hair is polluted and water is polluted. And this construction and enclave who has a right to be protected and those who do not have the right access even to protection. And so my third point I would like to make with me, I think that today it requires a, a leap in imagination that we need to imagine much more. And I want to read uh, something that the poet Martin Espada, who is a poet in uh, New York City from Puerto Rican origin, wrote. Because I, I like that. I like what he say. He says, no change for the good ever happens without it being imagined first. Even if that change seems hopeless or impossible in the present. So that's possibility of imagining in a place, you know, in a moment saturated with violence and saturated with a feeling that, you know, it's almost impossible to repair the planet as it is, to repair the world. That leap in imagination that is absolutely necessary to build an anti-racist, anti-capitalist, depatriarchal world. That leap in imagination, I think, is extremely important. And to go against, there is no alternative, this is the way it is, or even going against the incredible discovery in technology today, in digital capitalism, that offer us also a certain idea of freedom. So how do we rethink liberty versus freedom if freedom is a way of libertarian thinking? I was thinking this leap in imagination, we see it today in the feminist marches in Argentina or in Chile, you know, the famous song, A Rapist in Your Past. I saw it also in the Martinican woman marching against the pollution of their island by a pesticide that the French state allowed, even though it had been banned in France, in proper France. I see it in the marches, in the demonstration in Thailand today. I see it in the demonstration in India. I see it also everywhere in this idea against what is impossible. How to think, how to make this leap in imagination and to imagine another form of protection. Because, I mean, with the pandemic and also with the Anthropocene, with the threat that Anthropocene is bringing, we hear a lot of protection, how to protect ourselves, how to protect the planet, how to protect the world, and how to protect human life. But that this political protection, in a way, it's like the question of water. We have left it to the state. And we know that when protection is taken again by community, like self-defense, you know, form political protection by black people in the United States or by indigenous people in the Chiapas or, you know, indigenous people in India or elsewhere. We know that there is another understanding of protection. It's collective. It's about intergenerational. It think what would be a peaceful life in a world saturated also by the word war. War on drugs, war on terror, war on the virus, war on violence, all this war. And then peace appears as a very short moment between two wars and barely, you know, happening. So peace appears something that was long time ago, and of course we never attain it. But I want to think about what will be effectively a decolonial way of thinking about peacefulness and about refuge and sanctuary against war. How do we think? And that does not mean um, 
kind of a washy-washy kind of a, you know, let's love each other, although we should love each other. But, you know, it's not just about that. It's a really how we accept the discourse, but not just the discourse, in fact, the daily organization of war, the fact that we see soldiers in the street now with guns, and this become absolutely normal, the normalization of violence and war. And how do we, again, you know, the question of solidarity, the politic of solidarity, the politic of welcoming, the politic of hospitality, the politics effectively of sanctuary. And how we do that while thinking, again, not just to protect some people, but in the fact that these people will not be protected, we will not be protected as long as water is being taken away from human beings to a few group of men, as the sense of Sylvia Winter, as long as fire will be put to effective destruction and extension of agribusiness, as long as the politics of suffocation, exhaustion, and extractivism will be effectively the economy in the name of producing goods. And how we think about waste, how do we think about cleaning and caring? Because for me, cleaning and caring are connected. I don't think that you clean without caring, and I don't think you care without cleaning, the two are connected. How this stress on the back of black and brown women for centuries and still today. So this question, I mean, to go back to burning future, that you raise, it will be this leap in imagination that would be to imagine we will burn with love and not with fire, destruction of fire. I will burn with solidarity in transnational organization and solidarity. All these things for me are very important. And I think that 2020, the year 2020, which will end soon, has been a very important year in bringing together all this. As I say, started with the fire, then since then we have had incredible flood everywhere. We have also incredible destructive hurricane. And in the meantime, we have drought and we have neoliberal politics that destroy farmers, that destroy, you know, uh, so many lives of people. And at the same time, we have so many fighting back, so many, you know, struggle against that, that effectively produce a leap in imagination. And that leap in imagination is for me that what is being worked today. It's an invitation for daily exercise of imagination, daily exercise of leaping, you know, of jumping away, of making that jump in perhaps some time in the unknown. And to do that as a daily exercise and not just some kind of a fixed horizon, which we know can be transformed into a very rigid ideology, but the daily work of imagining a post-racist, post-patriarchal, post-capitalist and post-imperialist society and world, of course, and reconciliation and reparation in that world, in that imagining, how do we going to repair and again, the entanglement between different temporality. We still have to repair the past. We have to repair the present. And we are already to repair the future for the future generation. So this entangled temporality requires also a lot of imagination. Away from the Western idea of repairing, you have the wound, you repair, gone. We can even erase the scar thanks to surgery today, and it's disappeared. 
and we can move on. How are we going to live with, in fact, this entangled temporality and the idea of irreparable reparation? So uh, thank you so much for that insightful um, meditation and provocation for us to sit with, especially in this moment. Um, as you remarked, so many things are going on on a global scale that have to do with the earth, particularly uh, the exhaustion of the earth, uh, but also just the devastation that has been done by racial capitalism, by the plantation of scene, by various forms of extractions, as you pointed, that have created um, a dynamic by which not just the earth, but very racialized people, black and brown, are also exhausted. And this idea that you brought up of the body and the black body doing the work of accumulating the wealth that was then eventually sent to Europe and helped to build North America is um, something that I see is also producing intergenerational trauma. It's something that, as Angela Davis has noted in Women, Race, and Class, and Dorothy Roberts has noted in Killing the Black Body, has also reproduced the Black body and Black female body as a vector of sometimes contagion, of disease, but it's also one that has been the catalyst for resistance. So if we think about Fannie Lou Hammer, who is an African-American civil rights leader, and she famously said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, she was also a freedom fighter who was part of ensuring that Black people could acquire the right to vote in the American South. She spoke on the stages with Malcolm X in Harlem in 1963. And despite her body actually undergoing sterilization without her consent, she was able to allow the space for what Robin D.G. Kelly calls freedom dreams, whereby wanting to imagine a world in which her humanity could be fully seen. And so the exhaustion, on the one hand, can be quite debilitating. And, you know, I don't expect everyone to have that same tenacity, but it could also be the fuel um, and the impetus to really do the revolutionary work that allows and gives space for repair and reparation. So I, I really honor um, the roadmap you laid out for us to think about. I think, I, I guess, one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, since we're going to be more in conversation at this point, is the question around uh, care. So care as a concept has been taken up by scholars who, in some cases, are thinking about care in the context of care work. So the labor that is done in domestic sphere, in the sphere of hospitals, in the sphere of, in this case, uh, during a pandemic, dealing with patients who might have to deal with further care. But it's also how we relate to each other and the communities that we might be providing care for. And in some cases, reimagining what kind of collective organizations we need to be able to um, deal with crises. So in the framework that you outline in which there are these crises and we have to like lay out a new form of imagination, what work do you think CARE has in a very capitalistic <laughs> society that is quite stratified, is still racialized, and labor is still often based off of people's identities and gender? Is there a space for radical care from below um, in the systems that we live in? Yeah, I think we do. And I think they are, you know, we see them in action, right? If we see them in action among uh, black communities in the U.S., but also in Brazil, in Mexico, in France, even in Spain, in Morocco. 
there is the understanding that we need to care for each other and it's a collective work. And um, I will say, think of caring with curing. How do we also cure, as you said, intergenerational trauma? We're back in, in the question of decolonial psychoanalysis. And I think we see uh, coming back again the concern for mental health. And I think it's very important because we see absolutely how the psyche is very impacted by racism and sexism and Islamophobia. At the beginning, the kind of anti-racist work, mostly in Europe, uh, it was about condemning, you know, this kind of racial you know, act and discrimination, but not looking at the full person, looking at just, you know, what will mean in terms of housing or work, you know, discrimination in housing and work, and not what I call the daily ritual of humiliation. It's kind of a ritual in the sense that the white supremacy will exercise this kind of ritual through which they affirm themselves as being on the side of the powerful. And it can be anything. So it's not just the insult. It's not just a racist insult. It's just the thing that you don't matter, you know. And I remember uh, way back, you know, when I was working with a poor woman in Rainier Island, and I asked them what was the worst for them every day. And they told me the way they are received everywhere when they go to the city or, you know, wherever they have to go, because they have to do a lot with social services. They are in interaction with a lot of services because this is also the organization of their life as being dependent on all these public state services. And um, they will have to wait for half an hour. They will not receive the good. And that that was not never with a bad word, right? But just that. Just you don't exist. We're not going to rush to give you an information. We're not going to say, bon, hello, madame. We will not, you know, and that will be already. So for me, the question of care today, we have to think about how will we also cure ourselves from the poison. You know, I see it as a poison. Every day, the body are full of poison. So this work that you describe will be also for me, the collective work where we imagine what kind of medicine, what kind of medical herbs, or what kind of words, or what kind of work together that will also help us to take that poison out of our body and mind every day. And I do think that is collective. It can be personal resource, but has to be also collective. And I see it in this um, concern with the question of mental health the need to feel. So it's not, you know, for instance, overcoming silence. It's also to train, to listen. It's not just to hear. It's just also how do we learn to listen again? So how do we unlearn the way we have been listening? So I will say we need uh, some training. When I say some training, it does not have to be necessarily at the university, but I think we have to work with psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, when I think, for, for me, who has been interested in Fanon, and when I think about the Blida school in Algeria after independence, or Charlie Cole in Tunis, or the Fan school in Dakar, or the school in Nigeria or in South Africa, all these have disappeared today. Not as just institution, but the work, you know, the work which was done. So madness, as we say, I mean, is totally pushed out, you know. And so, yes, the question of care today, because as you were saying, exhaustion can be debilitating 
and it can be also the fuel and impetus to do revolutionary work. But this is quite often because of the collective we find ourselves in. And so exhaustion is analyzed as effectively a strategy, but through which we understand what is being done to us. And so from which we say, we will not be tired, as you were quoting Fanny Luwemer. We're on a podcast about the environment, wanted to turn to the environment. <laughs> That's true. And um, specifically uh, the question around burning futures. And in a way, I love to think about the future and I love to think about Afrofuturism. And this is something that guides some of my practice. But as a person who's also been trained as a historian, I'm really trying to unearth the past through the stories of dead people, but also those who are living who try to, as best as they can, carry out the recent histories of the environment. And for one thing, if I think about the history of the earth and the past and my family's connection to the earth, or in this case now, misconnection or disconnection, I think of the earth as both, on the one hand, uh, meditation, uh, at least in the past, uh, but a devastation in the current sense. I say meditation in the past because of, at least from my grandparents' generation and before, they were very much connected to the earth and grew things on the earth and knew how to ride horses and could make things flourish and green. But because of environmental destruction that started happening in Haiti as early as the recorded ones, as early as the 1960s, as a result of the plantation of scene overproducing with cash crops on the mountainside, in the 1960s and 70s, they began to migrate and that's how I ended up being born in the U.S. Um, and I bring this up as a kind of case study, an antidotal case study to think about what does it mean when the history of people's migration and the history of people who are basically forced to leave the earth that they were connected to suddenly means that they then become, and the case of my family's situation, day laborers in some cases. They're part of working in the factories and the U.S. context, and care workers, hospital workers, etc. So within one or two generations, because of the destruction of the earth and because of forced migration, it creates a devastation not just on the planet, but one in which people's intimate indigenous knowledge can no longer be in the way that they wanted and so the question then becomes, how can we repair the burning past of the earth, the droughts, um, things that were not always recognized as being part of the Anthropocenic shifts as something that can also help to reimagine or at least allow the space for people to reconnect to the lands that they have been displaced from? Yeah, sometimes, you know, I think about the question of repair of the past, and I think, I mean, repairing now, for instance, if we were to repair... And the incredible accumulation of damage and wounds done to the earth that uh, sometimes you think, how are we going to do it? You know, you come from uh, Haiti, but in Renew Island, I mean, I see this island, I mean, it was a slave society, so sugar cane. And these points tend to appear on postcard for tourists because sugar cane are beautiful when they are in flower. But Sugarcane meant deforestation, enslavement, uh, you know, blood in the soil, and now pesticide. And it say that if we were stopping sugarcane, it will take almost 20 years for the soil to be again, and we're not even sure. So how are we going to do? Because the devastation have gone deep in the subsoil, deep has entered the river, all this, and then it's in the air. It's as if we had like a sickness like that. You know, it's not a surface. It's really deep. 
It's deep in the sea, deep in the river, and also up in the air. So there is effectively an incredible challenge. And I think this is what I was saying, that how we're going to work with the fact that the reparation will be slow, very slow. That has to be also discussed collectively. For instance, let's say in a village, should we repair first the river, the water, or more, you know, the mountain or the, you know, the hills? That has to be a decision related to what people need in a situation. It cannot be like something from above saying that this is going to be done to the forest. You have to work with the people or to the river or whatever. You, you have to work with that. But what you were saying about the destruction, I mean, right now, the increase of arrival in the Canary Island by young African is because of the drought first and also because of the coast. I mean, the fishermen find no fish because the government is selling the right to fish to huge Chinese and European companies. So the very water from which they were getting their income, they cannot find their income, but they find death, you know, or perhaps if they survive migration and they will arrive in Europe to work, as you say, without papers quite often, either in the field, picking up tomato in the south of Italy or in, in Spain, or cleaning or washing dishes at the hand of the restaurant. I mean, all what they do. And at the same time, the society in Europe, even though they are totally anti-migrant, will fall apart if they did not have this workforce. So the forced migration contributes also because it brings to capitalism a very precarious, very vulnerable workforce that can be exploited even more easily. In the south of Spain, if they brought, you know, Moroccan women to pick up the strawberries, it was because... Spanish people will not want to do that, but also because they had organized that union. So you will bring in a woman and you will go to Morocco, to the very rural places where women will be illiterate, will not know how to read and write. You will tell them, they will find themselves, they will arrive. You know, there will be sexual violence, sexual harassment. So how effectively, as you were saying, I mean, the destruction of the verse, which built, lead to devastation and poverty and misery and forced migration. And of course, women are not just victims, or men are not just victims. They do things also through their journey. They are not passive. But at the same time, it feeds, you know, a workforce that just needed. But also, not only that, it gives money to even the NGO that will take care, the police, the military drone. I mean, all the apparatus that, you know, protect fortress Europe from the migrant. It also nourishes racism, nourish anti-migrant I mean, the interests are not just economic, they are also ideological, right? How do we repair the burn past? Uh, you know, after the World War II, the West started to say women in the South are making too many children. I mean, at the time, it was a third world woman. And so they are the cause of the poverty of the underdevelopment. And then huge program of sterilization and abortion, as you know, in Central America and the Caribbean, in Africa, in the Réunion Island, everywhere. But what was interesting, it was in the World Congress of Demography, by the 60s, it was connected with migration, the fear of migration. Because of these children being born, then living in poverty, will want to go to the rich country. And they will represent a threat for the free world at the same time. And then by the mid-60s, it was connected with the environment, having too many children, meant that the environment in this country will be destroyed. 
So it gave also to the North the mastery over the discourse on environment, on cleaning and repair, because it was based already by the 60s on, you know, birth control, control of migration, control of the environment. And at the World Congress of Population, you had the, the big office about migration, which were there, present, and also of labor, and also of environment. So we do see the connection. To repair the burn path, we have also to see how the discourse today about ecology of environment by the North, of course, erase that history. And even still put the responsibility of destruction on the people of the global South, still. And again, you know, the image of the South will be always things unclean, children being in the mud, half naked. And the contrast with the happy childhood of the North, very well-fed babies playing in the park and so on, that's part for me of the idea of the burned past and the burned present. But again, how do we pair the burned past? I will say it's already, you know, when farmers and peasants are fighting against dams or deforestation. But besides that, perhaps more deeply will be, it cannot be from the top down, has to be really in consultation with people. And again, what is to be saved? What is to be repaired? Because it's incredible multi-layered damage and wounds. Perhaps the strategy in a place would be a little of this and a little of that. Perhaps in another would be a focus on this. We have to rebuild the forest or we have to clean the river. And this multiplicity of strategy should be part, of course, of repairing the burnt past because it has to be really connected. In some lake in Africa, it's cleaning the lake that appears the most important because this is where you have the fish, the water, that is really important for communities before perhaps other things. So the reparation, again, has to be thought with different temporality than the discourse imposed from above and also spatially. And with borrowing technique, perhaps in Haiti, Paisan can learn from Paisan sharing similar situation of deforestation, monoculture. Monoculture is very bad, is a terrible thing for the global south. And that's a consequence of colonialism. Because it's as if you're caught doing what kills you, continuing doing what kills you. Coffee, sugar cane, tobacco, it kills you, you know but you have to do it because this is that and this is nonetheless survival. So how do we also delink ourselves from that? Delinking. Mm -hmm. Because we know um, people will tell you, if I don't do that, what do I do? I will have to migrate. So another issue that you brought up that I thought bodes well with this moment, but also with the environment is breathing and the ways that Breathing can be understood on a literal level, like do I have the physical capacity to breathe, but also figuratively, the kind of act of being overwhelmed and taken up and not able to feel capable of continuing and going about one's day. And the ways that plays out in, you know, you brought up the question around George Floyd, who wasn't able to breathe, but I can think of 2014 being in New York City, um, Eric Garner and him articulating that he could not breathe. 
But it wasn't just a question of not breathing because of um, anti-Black violence and police violence in particular, which of course is very real, but also just the environmental destruction that actually ends up happening to Black and Brown communities. And in thinking about uh, Harlem, the neighborhood and community I had lived in for years, as a place that has been the site of bus depots and other various forms of environmental pollution, Harlem, more than its adjacent neighbor, the Upper East Side, which is very white, <laughs> does, suffers higher rates of asthma and other respiratory diseases. This connection between racism, between classism, and the breathing aspect is something that is been present in various communities, not just African-Americans, but also Cairo, Egypt, where I lived for two years and spent time and the air pollution being so overwhelming that it causes a host of respiratory uh, illnesses and other symptoms and side effects. And I could list other places in the global south that also have these very toxic reverberations of a global environmental problem whereby air pollution has become ubiquitous. It's very much a continuation of capitalism, but it also it's not evenly spread out in the sense that here in Berlin, there's less of a presence of the type of air pollution that one witnesses in Cairo, Egypt, or in Harlem, or in Vieques, in Puerto Rico. And so how do we disentangle this breathing that comes with various forms of uneven industrialization? It comes with militarization as well. It comes with the sense that one's community isn't given the same value. It's being tested upon even. And Luckily, there have been some protests around these issues when communities of colors, when um, indigenous groups uh, like Standing Rock have tried to stand up against some of these encroachments, um, environmental destruction. It's not an easy open and shut case. So if we're going to unpack breathing, especially from an intersectional point, what work does the breath have in this moment of a pandemic where it's become so vital for us to understand mm -hmm. how we share breath, if we can share breath, how we breathe, and how this disease also impairs breath? How can we unpack that on a, mm -hmm. a kind of philosophical and uh, figurative um, way as well as the literal way? Yeah. It's as if, you know, the COVID-19 was almost a symptom of racial capitalism, attacking the lungs, attacking breathing at the time that we were saying so much police violence and the killing of George Floyd, you know, like there, with someone who is looking totally indifferent for eight minutes. And as we are saying, all these cities being incredibly polluted all over the place. And a polluted hair which is visible and invisible also. And the fact the cartography, I mean, the United Black Churches were the first in the 1980s to show the map of the U.S. where are the dumps. And they were all close, of course, to Black and poor neighborhood. But I'm thinking also of a, a very important agent of pollution of the air, which is the army. So when I hear, you know, about it, it's just the industry or, for instance, the plane or whatever, you know, the company. It's like hiding the fact that, of course, I know that we should have less plane and fly less around. But it hides the army. The army is one of the biggest polluters on Earth. Sometimes I'm thinking right now, you know, you are saying 
the burn pass, and I'm thinking about Iraq, the dumping of the weapon, and we know there is a lot of chemicals in them. How they're going to go in the soil? You know how they're going to pollute the water, and this is going to be there for how long? You know how long this is going to be there? You know because there is no idea. The U.S. has never cleaned after themselves, whether you know in Iraq or anywhere. So they never clean after themselves. They left their shit. I'm sorry, behind them, whether it's Vietnam. Laos, Cambodia, Afghanistan today, Iraq, or, you know, Guam. I mean, also in this island where they have military base. And this is how we see what you were saying, you know, the connection between very violent masculinity, I mean, white supremacy, masculinity, and pollution, and how the armies play a role. And the army, the U.S. Army, or even the French Army, or the U.K. Army, is there to kill black and brown people. The imperialism in the name of peace or bringing civilization or bringing democracy. So this is the fighting, as you were saying, of standing rock and everywhere in the world, asthma, COVID-19, air pollution, but also the military pollution and how we have to fight against the army as the main polluter. The army has incredible, huge military base everywhere that sometimes are abandoned. For instance, the Pacific Island, which are polluted to this day with radioactive waste. And children are born with leukemia. And this is not a crime. This is still not a crime. So this also, how imperialism is very much a source of air pollution. And also, of course, very huge on fossil energy and everything. But but the amount of waste, the amount of waste, the truck, the uniform, I mean, everything about the army is absolutely pure waste and pure pollution, especially of the air. So I do think the fight, even the fight against military base, people understand that a military base is not just about having soldiers, you know, in the neighborhood, but also that it will pollute deeply. And if ever they leave, they will leave behind them the fact of, you know, sickness of pollution. You cannot just clean it with a broom. It's deep. So I think the sickness of that, it's also what they leave behind. As you were saying, the question of breathing and also of um, not just police violence, but all this disease that are brought by the failure of health services, by asthma, by polluted air, by polluted water, by uh, bad food. So this, again, who has the right for a healthy body? So I want to end with one last question, particularly on what you ended on, which was the question around imagination. And I think that imagination is now being taken up quite heavily, especially by Black radicals, um, by people like Robin D.G. Kelly, who in Freedom Dreams kind of traces out this history in which, you know, on the one hand, you know, there is a lot of tragedy because of the legacies of slavery and racism and colonialism and environmental destructions and hazards. But there's also something to be said and pointing to what you had brought up before, unlearning some of the past and the poison 
to make space and to dream for a future where there are endless meadows, where people can fully breathe, where people from the global south have access to nature, to clean oceans and water. That dreaming, that imagination is so pivotal as social beings, as humans who want to be able to you know, really be in this world. And there are kernels of this that you can find in when I think about the Black Lives Matter movement or the push for the New Green Deal or for the Fridays for the Future, of course, and an international group of young people who are trying to, for the sake of their future, demand more for this planet and making adults accountable for their actions, uh, which I think is so important that young people should be able to exercise that agency so I think that um, I guess I wanted to like get your final thoughts on on dreams and particularly what relationship you think um, dreams have to freedom and really pushing the imagination mm-hmm. in this moment. When I was um, in Réunion and I was very young adolescent, I went, um, I walk in the mountain. Réunion Island is a very small island with a lot of high, high mountain. All these high mountains bear the name of Malagashi Maroons, who lived there for almost a century, and of course the slave owner waged a war against them. It was a terrible war. But then when I, at the time, you know, it was, I was 14, 15, nobody was doing that, not a young girl even, you know, but my parents were anti-colonial feminists, so it was okay, and I went there. My point is, when I was there, very high mountain, and from which you see the coast and the sea. I was imagining them looking down at the land of unfreedom and the fact that they were free, that they had dared to dream in a world where slavery was as natural as they had night, they had dared to dream. And then the dream was also because of the landscape of seeing the island and seeing the sea. And they could imagine also the land where they were coming from. They knew it was not too far because between Madagascar and Réunion, most of the enslaved were brought from Madagascar. And it's not that far. So they certainly had an idea that over there, you know, on the horizon, beyond the horizon was the native land. And how they certainly sustain, you know, their struggle. So the dream for me, yes, is very important. I mean, dreaming. And effectively, dreaming the fact that, yes, one day we will be free. One day, we will be free. It's not, it's not madness. Yes, it is. And we will do it, you know. And that dream carries us. Even despite the setback, despite the defeat, it will carry us. And that dream for me is absolutely deep, deep, and absolutely carried by generation of people in the global south. The aspiration for dignity, for equality, for freedom, never dies, never dies. And that's, for me, a dream of what you see, of this place where, where people, you know, black people and non-white people will live, will have access to nature, will have access to peacefulness, will have access to effectively have dreams, you know, because you know that capitalism, racism, sexism, they forbid dreaming. They cut your imagination by saying every day that you cannot do that, you will not be able to do that. And anyway, in history, none of your people did anything. So capitalism has to transform the world it creates in the only world that is possible. I mean, the famous, there is no alternative of my but But beyond that, 
I mean, there is no capitalism without colonization. And colonization is not about just stealing the wealth of people, but cutting their dreams. They are no longer dreaming because dreaming is dangerous. That kind of dream, people's dream, as Robin Kelly say, not the dream of a huge power and domination, but if it's people's power, yeah, people's dream, yeah. And these people's dreams, for me, I grew up, as I say, in a very activist family and so on, and it was the way that at the dinner table or at the lunch table, I heard as a little girl about what was being done, what the struggle in South Africa or in Cuba or in Haiti or elsewhere. In imagination, I was connected. I could imagine without knowing this place. My imagination could work with these places. So I did not need to know the people. I did not need to be there. Their dreams were possible for the little girl I was, and even today still for the woman I am. Because somewhere people are fighting, this feed my dream. This allow me to dream. So the dream cannot be cut. As I said, the daily exercise in breathing and exercise in dreaming. Breathing exercise and dreaming exercise as anti-racist practices. That's a beautiful way to end. And I'm, I'm really grateful to both of you for moderating this podcast and for inviting us to be here and how, in, especially in these conditions, um, I'm hyper grateful for that. And I'm also grateful to be in conversation with Francoise. And uh, I think that on the note of dreams, I hope that we can all continue to collectively do so as we build a better world, as we form community and kin, uh, chosen family, unchosen family, <laughs> and, and really work towards many of the wonderful ideas and thoughts that you brought to table. Cheers. Cheers.